This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. We've been waiting for this for years. Mm -hmm. A friend, someone I've admired for so long, Natasha Pikowitz. Thank you so much for having me. This is so great. I feel like we've been talking about this and now I finally have something I can share with you and see and it's surreal. Well, and you're such an avid reader in every single range, you know, very literary, curious, intellectual, as well as being an incredible pastry chef extraordinaire. But before we dive into talking more about your book that's out now, More Than Cake, 100 Baking Recipes Built for Pleasure and Community, which Mm. is so beautiful. I just want to establish like some of the other things you've done so everyone knows just how brilliant you are. So you've been nominated for three James Beard Awards. Mm -hmm. You have raised over 200,000 plus for Planned Parenthood through the bake sales that you started And we're really going to dive into that. And I love how that's also threaded through this book, this idea of community. I mean, when Obama went to Estella, he was eating your pastries. (laughs) And then I also did Hillary Clinton's 65th birthday cake too, which was completely surreal. And I like Googled what her favorite flowers were. They're hydrangeas. And, you know, Bill was like vegan and we had to do a special dessert for him. But she loves chocolate. So we did like a big chocolate layer cake. Yeah, those kind of opportunities were really crazy. Just working in some of the best restaurants in New York, like you have so much access and opportunities to do these kind of bespoke fun projects. And I really loved doing those for sure. Can you tell us exactly, you know, which group were you working for during this time? I really want to talk about Flora Bar where Mm -hmm. you, uh, your sticky buns kind Mm -hmm. of, I remember going there one morning and I was like, what the hell, they're out. But yeah, just tell us about (laughs) that quickly. Yeah, I was the executive pastry chef for a restaurant group that included Ultra Paradiso in Soho and Flora Bar and Flora Coffee in the Met Breuer, which sadly is no longer the um, Marcel Breuer building is now where Frick is while they're doing their renovations. But at the time, I still feel this way. I came onto the project because I felt that my favorite kind of dining concept atmosphere 
world was situated inside of like a museum. Like I love this idea of restaurants as like a secondary space within a larger institution. Like I love a restaurant in a department store. I love a restaurant in a museum. There are cafes that are in bookstores. You know, I love this idea of like food within this like larger venue that is sort of like different disciplines and different media. And obviously like being inside of the Breuer building was a completely surreal and incredible experience because the building itself, you know, was such a source of inspiration for how the food felt, what it felt like to eat that food in that kind of hallowed space, what it meant to like make food on the Upper East Side, you know, among all these restaurants, among this like neighborhood by Central Park. So I was very inspired by the environment that we were at and also very aware of like people are going to be looking you know, walking around the museum and looking at contemporary art and what it would feel like to be able to rest and sort of reflect or process on what you saw, but with a thoughtful pastry and like a great cup of coffee or a beautiful tea, a glass of wine, some oysters. Like I thought there's so much like romance in that idea. And often, not often, but there are museums where the cafe or the food program feels kind of clinical or more like an afterthought or it feels really expensive but not in a way where you feel like you're treating yourself. So I thought it was just such a great opportunity to be able to translate my ideas but in kind of this rarefied setting. And then when I was working on the book proposal, like all the recipes are brand new for the book, developed especially for the book, but I had this repertoire of recipes that I had been working on at Flora, at an Ultra, and I obviously wanted to figure out a way to scale them down, streamline them, translate them for the home baker. And so, like you mentioned the sticky bun, that is the one recipe in the book where that is the recipe of the bun at Flora. Like that is literally it. And some of the other recipes I kind of like put more tweaks on them or change them a bit. But with that one, I was like, I spent a whole summer working on that recipe and I personally feel like it's pretty perfect. So I didn't really want to change it too much. I wanted to kind of, you know, preserve that in the book. Oh, well, I'm so glad you did because I was so (laughs) happy when I saw it in there. So I'm, well, obviously no one can see me, but I'm, you know, lovingly um, (laughs) turning the pages of Natasha's book because I want to go to a story that um, just speaks to what an incredible friend you are, but also the kind of baker particularly, but also how you don't let cross-country travel get in the way of a great cake. I know where this is going. (laughs) So you're going to tell the story, but on page 151, there's a recipe for a cake. Now, this wasn't the cake that you made. However... Why it triggered this memory in me is because when I turn the page to 152, I see a gorgeous cake with wildflowers on it. And okay, I'm just going to let you tell the story because we have a mutual friend, Ali Eastman, who if she could be here would be kind of creeping in the corner, (laughs) probably eating cake, you know, happily because we were busy and couldn't eat with her. But it was her wedding... What happened? Yes. 
also, I love that we're teasing out these threads and stories because I, you know, I know your podcast obviously isn't just about food. So I think it's such a privilege for me to be able to talk about this book just in the context of all of the great topics you discuss, like nonfiction, fiction, everything. So I really appreciate that. And I mean, this is why I do pastry. I love weddings. I love being able to make cakes for friends on their day. And, you know, that was one of the first weddings I think I ever did for a close friend. And Allie was, is living in Jackson, Wyoming. And so when I was coming up with this idea of doing a wedding cake, first of all, I did a lot of prep for that cake in New York. So this was the first time that I had to fly with some of the components in my suitcase. And it was, ins- it must have looked insane, like going under the x ray, but it was like a huge suitcase that was full of like vacuum sealed um, passion fruit curd, you know, all of my mise en place for like uh, mascarpone mousse and sheet and sheet and sheet of like a Genoise sponge that I had baked off in advance. And How so I, did you wrap that sponge? I, I, I thought you need a special suitcase that's just built. For foam, for the sponge layers. Somebody should invent that. It feels so improvisational every single time I do it. Like every time I have to travel, uh, I have to put a cake in an Uber. I have to like get somewhere. I have to transport things. I feel like I'm always taping together a bunch of boxes. It's always so impromptu. Like there definitely aren't enough great things. If anyone there can like develop this for me, I would love that. But um I basically just wrapped everything in plastic, put everything into boxes, stacked them into a suitcase and hope for the best. Um, I definitely had some bad experiences before where I had like liquidy things like jams, curds, compotes in kind of like deli containers, like cylinder containers with like lids that you snap on and those would break in transit. And pop. And yeah. the pressure. So I actually like... Had changed my method where I was kind of packing things flat in like freezer Ziploc gallon bags so like things couldn't explode in transit. But it's always very nerve wracking to kind of unzip your bag and be like, does everything look okay in here? Anyway, I built the cake at her kind of like a dear family friend's house and that was really fun and and went totally fine. And it was a gigantic cake, but the Wonderful thing was the day before the wedding, I had went on a hike in the Tetons. And as I'm walking around, it was sort of like early summer. There are so many beautiful little blossoms and branches and leaves. And I was so inspired by all of this like natural flora. And so I was kind of gathering all of these things. And I had this idea that like the cake would be decorated with, you know, the Wyoming like natural flora. And it would just be like, you know, the wedding was in this gorgeous field and it was just the, you know, the mountains are kind of ranges in the distance. And I had this very like romantic notion of this sort of cake that would be enveloped by all of these natural elements. And moments before we're getting in the car to go to the wedding, I'm like in the garage, I'm decorating the cake with these like tiny yellow sort of blossoms, all these little flowers. And Allie, our friend's dad and his best friend whose house we were in, they had grown up in Wyoming, you know, as kind of like like river guide. Yeah, river guides. To- river guides. So obviously he's like intimately familiar with like every single plant. Um, you know, there are books in their house of like a guide to Wyoming. And he comes over 
And he almost didn't say a thing. And he kind of came over and he just like swooped these flowers off the cake. And he was like, those are fatal. Those are poisonous. Those are extremely deadly. And I was, I almost, I almost had a heart attack because I was just like, <sighs> that was something I hadn't considered <laughs> that, you know, I was gathering things that were potentially toxic, you know, and that was kind of like a turning point with how I was thinking about decorating cakes with natural things too, where I was like, you know what? It doesn't have to be like roses from the bodega that are sprayed in pesticides. And obviously it certainly shouldn't be anything that's like potentially harmful if you're ingesting it like a poisonous flower. So that was a very teachable moment. And that was the moment where I was kind of like, what if the natural things we're gathering were also like edible and beautiful things like, you know, um, a cherry tomato on the vine with like a little branch attached or, you know, a bundle of chicories that are speckled and variegated and look like the petals of a rose, but, you know, are obviously edible and safe to eat. And so that was definitely like a moment where I was like, I have to be thoughtful when I'm thinking about how I'm decorating these cakes because I'm hoping that other people will do the same, but I also want to make sure that everyone's doing it safely and that, you know, no one's dropping dead or anything. (laughs) Oh my God. I just, I remember hearing that story after the fact, you know, when we're eating the cake that Mm. was so sublime (laughs) as well. To go to a wedding and have the cake be like the best element, especially, you know, when you're dancing and it comes out and you really need that energy. Yes. And... And also just like that moment for me to be able to see my friends delight into cutting it. These like symbolic moments, I hold so much space for those moments. And when I get to like provide that for people, like that's a joy I want everybody to be able to share with somebody. Maybe it's a small cake or a small dessert. It doesn't have to be a wedding cake to feed 80 people. But just being able to be a part of that moment and contribute to that feeling is so priceless and is so special to me. Well... I also want to acknowledge that in the book, it's A, Natasha is the most exquisite writer. And I keep thinking, you know, just before we turned record on, she was telling about her next book. But I want the book of essays. I want the memoir in essays because you're such a beautiful writer. And the introduction to the book really reads like, you know, a New Yorker essay. And one of the elements that you weave through that is this idea of community, exactly what you're talking about. Also what I love is that you really identify that the process of baking can be meditative and really a way to grow confidence, to take back your time. Can you talk a little about that? I mean, absolutely, because I know that's, it's like I'm kind of writing a book that I would think is useful or that I would want to read. And I I think when I'm thinking about the reader, like that's how I'm sort of framing things. Like how am I setting the reader up for success? And a lot of it is sort of translating experience and strategies from working in fine dining kitchens for a home baker. And there's so much, there's so many salient points to take away in all of that. And I think that it's really useful to think about how is a restaurant able to produce, you know, high volume, under a high pressure environment with consistency. And I think for the home baker, there's so much there. And everything from kind of like, you know, before I start working, I need to have a clean surface. Because, you know, I always felt like 
if your work surface reflects kind of your state of mind, and if it's cluttered and messy and dirty, then my mind feels cluttered before I can even begin. But if I have a clean surface, if I have my recipe, a little list, it feels actually pleasurable to start because it's sort of the promise of beginning, the potential of starting. And it feels great to kind of have that fresh sort of canvas before you begin projects. So I'm trying to like infuse the text of the book with tips, with strategies that will kind of create that same feeling and sense of readiness for the reader. Because, you know, I think like With pastry and baking especially, I feel like sometimes home cooks get hung up on this idea of like, I'm overwhelmed, this is so much, this is complicated, where do I begin? And it's like, it doesn't have to feel that way. And I think there's so much pressure for like, you know, a recipe to be like, one bowl cake or like, you know, everything happens in one bowl or one step, one pot this and the shortcuts and the hacks and the tips. And, and what I'm trying to stress is not necessarily like an old school way of thinking about pastry, but more just like an appreciation and an expectation that there's a way for us to sort of sink into these tasks and enjoy them. Like if you were, you know, quilting, that's not a process you're rushing through. If you're creating music or art, like maybe that's not a process you want to rush through because the act of doing it is an act of pleasure in of itself. And so if we're prepared to take on that task, then doing it feels good. And that's what makes you want to return to it again and again. So this is just that feeling I'm trying to stress where like also wanting to be very cautious and respectful around using words like easy because it's so subjective because something that might feel easy to me might not feel easy to you or someone else. And it's on a continuum. And so it's not about things being easy or hard. Like I want to get rid of that paradigm completely because it's not about easy or hard. In my mind, everything is sort of like equal hardness, difficulty. It's What matters is how are the instructions written out? If the guidance is there, then it's all kind of equally possible and nothing is harder or less hard. It's more just about like, you know, feeling good going into it. Well, one of the tips that I love that I have never really used is just getting a scale. Get that little (laughs) scale, the digital scale, instead of measuring because I like to cook and in the pandemic, like everyone, I made how hard is a banana bread? Mm-hmm. Now, I've done this well before. For whatever reason, something went awry. This thing was so rubbery and hard. <laughs> I threw it out the window and like thought I would into another apartment building's garden. I don't know <laughs> what. I mean, we were all so crazy. Yeah. And I thought, oh, the birds will eat it. Didn't touch it. Did not touch it. It was like... <laughs> A, like a rubber frisbee that could knock someone's head off. I mean, I'm really glad you're like sharing the story of what you perceive as a failure because I think that's also something I'm kind of like, I harp on quite a bit in the book where I'm kind of like, look, I've made every mistake you can make many times. I've made so many failures. I can't even tell you like on a psychic level, but also like on a technical execution level. Like I live in that world of failure. And I think that that is really the only thing that allows us to become more 
aware, more experienced, to be more in touch with our senses and to like become, you know, ultimately to like learn from that moment and adjust moving forward. And I think, you know, not to be cliche, but like everything is kind of a teachable moment. And all I ask is like, if you are present while you're doing that thing, then even something that's like a failure can become a moment from which you can improve or make something different the next time around. And also I want to say that like, even things that you think you've messed up, I don't even believe for one second that there's not something else we could have done with that banana bread. I know. And we like could have I toast, maybe cut it into biscuit, like really fine and made not a biscotti out of it, but something. No, it, exactly. See, so so your mind is already spinning. And this is I'm so glad you said that because this is exactly what I'm hoping readers will feel empowered to do, which is apply critical thinking to a instructional text. And I think like when you're looking at an instructional text like a cookbook, it's like follow steps one, two, three, like follow this roadmap, follow this and you will succeed. And that's when a reader feels defeated. They're like, I follow the instructions and it still feels like a Frisbee or whatever. So that's where we can apply critical thinking to following a recipe, which is like, okay, my palate is telling me that I don't love how this banana bread tastes, but my the like critical thinking part of my brain knows that if I, you know, freeze the banana bread until it's rock hard and then use a bread knife to slice off thin little slivers and then I toast that, I'll have like a cracker that I can put on a cheese board or something, you know, or I can you know, toast it. Put it on ice cream. Make like like a trifle. Make a crumble or or something. Exactly. And I'm like, because I'm so aware that like, you know, fruit costs a ton. Eggs are so expensive. Butter is expensive. We're paying premium for these ingredients and it feels horrible to throw things away. So I think wherever I can, I'm sort of sprinkling little ideas of like, oh, like you overbaked your cake? Like, no worries. We can soak it with something flavorful and it will be delicious in your layer cake, so don't throw it away. So I think like even in that moment of failure or mistakes, there is an there is an opportunity to be creative and to do something unexpected with that. I love that. And there's just so many opportunities to do that. And even now, I'm my mind is pinging with yeah. all those mistakes, you know, We couldn't leave this conversation without talking about your bake sales and how they've inspired people across the country to also do bake sales. And again, you have this philosophy that it doesn't have to start big, just start small. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. First of all, I feel like my the relationship of kind of producing these grassroots events, my relationship to social justice is like inextricable from my love of baking. So like I could not have written this book if that was not an important, like you were saying, current that is sort of coursing through the text. And that is why there's no recipe in the book that's like a cookie for one. I don't even know if that's a thing. But like these are recipes that are designed to be shared and used in group contexts for your neighborhood, to serve your community, whatever it is. So that really for me came about because, you know, after the presidential election in 2016... I think that a lot of people were feeling like, what can I do? I feel so hopeless. I feel full of rage, anger, fear, anxiety, stress. And so for me, that was like very much a process of looking inward and sort of assessing my own skill set and being like, what, what do I know how to do that I can bring 
that I can apply in a way that will serve my community? And I think the answer to that question was, well, I know how to bake things. I love pastry. I have a background in producing events, but mostly through music. I love organizing parties, bringing people together. And so the bake sale kind of felt like this event, this moment that sort of encapsulated all of these things that are important to me and that I know how to do. And at the time I was working in restaurants that had the sort of infrastructure and resources to execute an event of this scale, like, you know, a kitchen, a restaurant, dining room. Like I had access to those resources. But, you know, now that I'm not working in restaurants, that's changed quite a bit. And I have had to sort of recalibrate what the scale of the bake sales could be and also be like, you know, it doesn't have to be an event with 80 chefs and we're raising $150,000 and 2,000 people are coming through. Like, that's amazing. And those are incredible days that are unforgettable to me and, you know, extremely meaningful. But what I hope the reader takes away from examining the book is sort of this idea of it doesn't have to be a big splashy event either. And in fact, like sometimes the most heartening and moving moments are these sort of smaller scale events that feel really DIY, they feel really punk, that you can do in your neighborhood with extremely limited resources. And, you know, you're kind of calling on, um, you're putting out that action call to your neighbors and to your community being like, oh, anybody here know graphic design? Does this wine shop that I like to shop at, are they willing to host a bake sale for a few hours? Is this local farm interested in partnering up and we can share, talk about regenerative farming or something? Is this food bank, food pantry, food fridge willing to you know, receive like any excess product that we might have through the bake sale? Like These kinds of smaller strategies that maybe involve just a handful of other people. It's like so within our grasp to create these smaller moments that engage our our communities. And that intimacy and sense of scale like actually is what resounds with me the most. And it's not the larger, splashy, bigger events, but it's kind of these smaller events that really reflect the relationships you have in your community. So I wanted to hopefully get that across in this essay that I wrote about bake sales. And also I'm going to go on tour for my book, which is like a dream come true. I'm like an author going on tour. I feel, feels very cool. And I feel very lucky that Artisan is really supporting me and helping me make the book tour of my dreams. And when I was sort of ideating what it would look like, I said to them, can we have the tour be about bake sales because it, first of all, I wanted to find a way to talk about the book while kind of taking some of the spotlight off of me and being able to bring in people in different cities who are doing great work. And they were like, okay, we've never done this before, before a support of a book, but we love your enthusiasm and we'll find a way to make it work. So I was just so thrilled that they were like into my kind of pie in the sky ideas. And we brought on a dear friend to produce the bake sales. We're doing it kind of to bookend the tour. We're doing a big bake sale in New York City at the White Hotel on April 16th. And 
We're partnering up with my favorite independent booksellers that you know deal with food book titles exclusively. So in New York, tell us who they are. Kitchen Arts and Letters, the best, best, best Manhattan's finest. They're on the Upper East Side, kind of like Yorkville Upper East Side, um, and they're just and have an astonishing array of titles. Hard to find periodicals. I adore them. They've been so supportive. They're going to be at the bake sale, um, having books. I'm going to sign books as well because you know, I have to like get the book in there somehow. And then in LA, we're partnering up with Now Serving and they're obviously so critical to their community there. They're in Chinatown. They produce so many cool events. And I was just blown away when they were like, yes, let's partner up. Let's do this. Especially because I haven't produced a huge bake sale in LA before. So they're really obviously completely tapped into the community there and know like, these are the bakers, these are the venues, like we love these people. And so it's been just so much fun to collaborate on this event that I love, but in kind of a new context, which is to support this book. And then I'm doing two more small bake sales in DC with the bookseller uh, Bold Fork, which is kind of new to the scene there, but they're already like instantly beloved in their community. And I'm so excited. And then in Seattle, I'm doing a small bake sale at the Book Larder, which is Again, like a great independent bookseller that specializes in food-related titles. So it's like crazy. I'm just, I'm. my mom is like texting me articles every day about how to like get healthy and recharged before I go on my tour and, you know, eating right, getting sleep, going on my walks. And, you know, I want to be obviously like physically ready to take on all of this, you know, array of programming and really bring the magic of bake sales to other cities and meet the people doing the work there. That's it. Also, that exchange of energy when people are also bringing their history to the bake sale and the reason why they're involved. Now, you just mentioned your mom, which is (laughs) who I wanted to talk about next. So that was like (laughs) such a beautiful, maybe I subliminally... (laughs) Well, I'm asking her to do a lot for this tour and for the book, but... Well, I want to talk about your relationship with her and also the fact that she's an artist. So much of how you present things visually, well, it's so artistic, but it has a certain sensibility. Also the way you just are in the world aesthetically that feels like it's very just inspired every day by how you're feeling and thinking and want to move through the world. And I wondered if that is an influence from your mom. Um, I'm sure she would love to think so. I'm sure she all say. the credit for that. But, you know, so my mom, Li Huai, is a visual artist and she teaches at UC San Diego, San Diego where I grew up. But she is, she immigrated to California from China in the mid-80s. And so I think she's very much bringing that perspective of, you know, that cultural exchange of being an immigrant now having lived in the United States for, you know, 40 years. I didn't go to culinary school and becoming a chef was certainly not the career I ever thought that I would end up in. I studied Scottish literature in university. I wanted to be a music journalist. I applied to a grad school and didn't get in anywhere. Like finding food was like, took me all of my 20s and into my 30s to like figure out and land in where I am now and have this discipline kind of like click with me in a way where I'm like, oh my God, this is my passion. This is my this work. This is why I want the book of essays, <laughs> just putting it out there. <laughs> but, you know, I think also for my mom, like 
They're coming from academia. They're coming from an industry or line of work that has stability and structure and security sort of built into it. And I also think there's a lot of expectation for first-generation children of immigrants to kind of like pursue more traditional careers that... Stable. Yeah, like medical school, doctor, lawyer, business, whatever. And I think that like it was very hard for my parents at first to sort of be like, oh, you're a line cook, you make minimum wage. And it's hard and it's so hard. And, you know, you're a a young woman in a big city getting off of work at 2 a.m. and taking the train home at night. Like, I know we haven't talked about the rigor of what your job was like and and the hours. It's just important that it looks so glossy, you know, this beautiful book and the pictures, but... This is coming from a decade yes, in professional kitchens or longer. Yes. And I think like, you know, obviously being able to build to this, to write a book, I think in certain ways like legitimizes my career choice to my parents. Like my dad is a historian, has published so many books. And I think that this was a way that they could see the work that I was doing as not just legitimizing it, but just being like, oh, this is just the perfect way of bringing in my background of writing, of being curious about the world beyond food, being a lover of books and a big reader, but also being having my first book be about food. So it kind of felt like this perfect coming together of things. And when I was working on the book proposal, that was in the first early months of the pandemic of spring 2020. And I think like everyone, I was just like you mentioned your banana bread meltdown. And I think like for me, I was just like feeling that, you know, life is fragile, time is fragile. My family was 3,000 miles away in California. Like I know you know what that feels like too. And feeling like I need to do something big with my mom and I cannot wait another day to do this. Like it has to happen now. And for the first time I was working for myself and not answering to some guy where I could make the creative decisions. I could collaborate with whomever I wanted. And I really wanted it to be my mom because I was like, now I can make those calls. So I asked her if she would illustrate my book. And I was so happy when she said yes. She's like an insanely accomplished artist and, you know, has shown all over the world. And I'm familiar with her art, but as her daughter and having grown up around it. So this was like a new way for us to to relate. And that was kind of a paradigm shift, I think, for our relationship where we were having FaceTime calls and talking about like deliverables and like scale and materials and concept. And we weren't talking about like, are you taking vitamins? Like, who are you seeing? Like, are you getting enough sleep? Like mom stuff. And so I think that was a kind of a breakthrough for me where I was like seeing my mom in a different way. And I'm like, my mom is an individual bringing a lot to the table and she's a collaborator and an artist. And like, I'm so proud of how the book came out because it encapsulates like my love of, I collect vintage cookbooks and often those vintage cookbooks don't have photos in them because it was so prohibitively expensive to have like color glossy plates in old cookbooks that often the books would not have photos 
or just maybe have a few photos, but they would be illustrated and they would have like a black and white pen illustration, maybe depicting a technique or an ingredient, or maybe it's just like a tonal moment of like a sprig of this, a gesture of that. So I was very inspired by those cookbooks of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s, before printing cookbooks is what we know it is now, which is photos are a hugely important part of the text. And rarely you see titles that do well, that don't have photos, but the ones that are are huge hits, like Samin Nosrat is a famous example of a contemporary bestseller title that has illustrations. And I wanted to figure out how to have photos because I need to have my photos, but also bring in my mom's illustrations to sort of accent the text, punctuate moments, bring her whimsy, bring her like little scenes. And it's just perfect, you know? And also it was a dream to get those deliverables from her. She's just early with everything, churning out like 50 illustrations. She did paintings for every chapter opener. Um, It's a dream. Yeah. That's so special. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned that you avidly collect, you know, vintage cookbooks. I can't let you go without asking if you could recommend one of your favorite um, cookbooks, whether it's another baker or just more traditional. But then I'd also love, because I know you're such an avid reader and it's something you, Ali, and I share, maybe a great novel or a book that has just resonated with you in the last few years that really sticks out. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this. And yeah, so cookbooks, I mean, gosh, like I really do gravitate towards cookbook authors who um, have a literary feel to the text and maybe it's a great head notes or beautiful chapter essays. I love that. So I think a great contemporary example of this is Brooks Headley, who owns Superiority Burger in the East Village, has written two, in my opinion, indispensable cookbooks. One, Fancy Desserts, marks his time being the pastry chef at Del Posto. And what was revolutionary to me about this book is, first of all, his style of writing. He's so witty. He's It's so natural. It's just... You just want to dive in, but he's great at accenting recipes with stories of being in a touring band in the 90s, you know, these kind of anecdotes that bring the book to life. And then more timeless authors that I love, again, like an all-time great, like Elizabeth David, for example, or Richard Olney, they are fabulous writers in their own right, have written memoirs, books, what have you. But the way that they write cookbooks is they're so infused with stories of travel, adventure, escape, like parties at home. You really feel like you're kind of like, you know, that feeling of being at their table and like hearing about like a late night. Like I love what those books can do. So people like Richard Olney, he wrote Simple French Cooking, um, 10 Vineyard Lunches. He wrote like the cookbook for the Domaine Tampier founder, Lulu Tampier. And then Elizabeth David, of course, like has written memoirs, essays, but also like books on Italian cooking, French cooking, all of that. So those are those are titles that I like will pick up again and again, like also like MFK Fisher, that kind of thing, where they're a pleasure to read as much as they are to cook from. And mm-hmm. so I like kind of having that sweet spot. And then novels, I mean, I let me think what I've just been reading recently that I loved. Hwasu wrote this incredible memoir, and he's a writer for The New Yorker, but grew up in California. And again, like, I love these narratives of, like, 
you know, he's growing up in Northern California. I'm from Southern California, but I found a lot to identify with in his just like depiction of growing up as like an Asian American person in California, but also as a person who's like desperately in love with music coming of age in the 90s. He's like, I think a little bit older than me, but all the references there are like so fun, so, so good. And I just tore through that. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. The the closing question, <laughs> what lights you up? What lights me up? I mean, what lights me up is being able to share these moments with other people and realize that baking is not something for me that exists in a vacuum and that the finale of getting to you know slide a cookie over to someone when I see them or bringing cake to a dinner party and just like the delight and being able to share that moment with people is like is why I wrote the book and is why I bake. Okay everyone after this conversation I feel like I'm on such a, a high how do we follow along? You know, if we're in one of these cities, how can we join the bake sale? What's the best way to follow yes. you? Well, so I am on Instagram and my handle is just my name, Natasha Bickowitz. I also just built out my own website, which I'm very proud of because that is certainly not one of my skill sets, but I have a website and it's natasha-pickowitz.com. So Great. my whole tour will be there. I'm basically on tour for two months. There's going to be some virtual, in-person bake sales, events, pop-ups, dinners. There's so much going on. I'm really doing the most. Like It's too much, but I, I can't say no. It's a problem. So yes, check out my website. I have a newsletter and you can kind of pop in your email and that's really the best way to find out about what I'm going to be doing. Great. And we're actually going to be doing an event together yes. on April 26th with some other really incredible women, Anna Polonsky and Hannah Goldfield, and you'll be signing books there. Yeah, so right. thank you. Thank you so yes. much. So fun. <laughs> Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Allmeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Rodofsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.